welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In this week's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is in the series, A Life That Pleases God. As we work our way through Hebrews 11, we see examples of those who demonstrated what faith is. First, let's define faith. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. The trials or hard times we face in life tend to push us to hide from them and avoid them. Did you know God allows us to walk through difficult times in order to help us grow in our faith? If you are in a trial or about to face one, remember, God is greater than any trial you face. He will always walk through it with you, and you will be stronger in your faith because of it. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath for today's message up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, as well as Exodus chapter 14, where we will be spending the majority of this morning. The message titled, Faith Trusts God in Trial. We're studying faith, uh, it's no surprise to you, you've been here on Sunday mornings, we're studying faith and what faith looks like, uh, what faith is, but more importantly, how faith is lived out, because without God describing for us in living color with these illustrations, we would all think that we're people of faith because we come to church, or we're people of faith because we own a Bible. We're people of faith because I claim to know God or believe in a higher power, but God is gonna show us what real faith looks like, and he gives us these examples. Well, today is a little unusual in that it's not just an example of the faith of a single man, but it's the faith of a group of people, and arguably a flawed faith. And as we look at this initially, it's not gonna look like faith at all. It's gonna look a lot more like like, uh, panic and fear and trepidation. But despite their internal fears, they're going to flip a switch somewhere in our story here. And by the word of God, they're going to obey. They're going to move forward. They're going to trust God, despite the fact that they have these fears. So at this point in the narrative, uh, we're going to see that uh, we've been talking recently about Pharaoh and Moses and the plagues and God leading them out of Egypt. And that's where we find ourselves today is they're finally leaving the land of Egypt. God has broken the back of Pharaoh. He's, uh, He's caused Pharaoh through these plagues to let his people finally go. And they are now plotting out into this uncharted course into the wilderness when they encounter their first major hiccup. It's a big hiccup. Hebrews eleven twenty nine 29 reads this way. By faith, the people, the Jews, the nation of Israel, they crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And so God is pointing us back to this Old Testament story in Exodus chapter 14 and invites us to look at this to figure out how did they demonstrate faith and how can we live by faith in that same way. The first thing we're going to see here in this trial is that, number one, God is behind every trial. As you read this narrative from their departure to the promised land, you're going to see that everywhere they go is as a direct result of the leading of God himself. How do we know that? Because if you'll back up into Exodus 13, just prior to this, you're going to read, and the Lord went before them That means God is leading them. God isn't just following them with a pillar of cloud, following them with a pillar of fire. It says the Lord went before them uh, by day at a pillar of cloud to lead them, he says, along the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them the light that they might travel by day and by night. And so we see here that God is leading them so that whether they're having good times or they're having bad times, 
Or hypothetically, you get trapped against a sea with Pharaoh's army approaching. You know that as long as you look and you see that pillar of cloud next to you, or you see that pillar of fire right next to you, no matter how bad things get, you are exactly where God wants you to be. God led you there. He led the nation of Israel to that place. Exodus 14, verse 1 through 4, reveals to us where God led Israel. It says, the Lord led, uh, said to Moses, so God is about to lay this plan out for Moses. Here how, here's how things are going to go down. Tell the people of Israel to turn back. It means that where they were going was going to a place of relative safety further away from Pharaoh. But now you're, you're turning back. You're going to do something illogical. You're going to encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea and in front of Baal-Zephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. And Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And so here we see that God is leading them to a path that doesn't make sense. I'm sure there's some people out there who are Boy Scouts in the, in the camp of the Israelites, and they're saying, hang on, promised land is this way. And Moses says, well, the pillar is going this way. And so the logical course would be to go this way. The illogical course is to go this direction, to back up, to backtrack, to go somewhere else and to camp themselves in what would be an exposed position. If you, if you fear that an enemy is gonna come upon you, you don't camp against the sea because you've got no retreat. You've got nowhere to go. You have trapped yourself. And yet did God intentionally lead Israel to a place where they would be entrapped? My Bible says they did. God led them to this scary place. God led them to a place of weakness. He led them to a place where they'll be trapped and they have no other recourse but to trust God. God ever lead us that way? To do things that just don't seem logical? God, I wouldn't have made that choice. God, I wouldn't have put myself in this tough position where I don't have enough money to pay the bills. I don't have enough strength. I am going to the hospital. I'm scared. I'm nervous. God leads us like that sometimes. Well, God was doing this because he was causing Pharaoh to stir up in his heart this anger toward the people and to pursue them because God has a plan. So even when God does something in our life that to us seems unreasonable, unrighteous, illogical, it is still God who is leading us there. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. Why is Pharaoh getting angry? Why, why didn't Pharaoh learn his lesson? Because of God. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and over all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. So just a brief recap here. Who led Israel to be in a weak position and to encamp in an illogical position, backtracking so that they're in a position to be defeated by Pharaoh? Who led them there? It was the Lord, right? Uh, who stirred up the heart of Pharaoh to get angry? It was the Lord. Remember, the Lord said, I will harden his heart. Who is it that motivated Pharaoh to gather his army and to encamp against them to utterly destroy and wipe out the entire nation of Israel? Who, who motivated that? It was the Lord. The Lord did all these things. This whole situation of desperate helplessness is orchestrated by God himself. They are, God is not responding to Pharaoh saying, whoa, Pharaoh's pursuing them. I better do something. Oh, what can I do? Look up in the book of miracles here. Ah, I can part the Red Sea here. Let's open it up and let's get them going. Whew, Israel, that was a close one. Am I right or am I right? That's not God. This was all part of God's doing. He orchestrated all of this just as he does our own trials, doesn't he? Our cancer, 
when our mate left us, when our child rebelled against us, when we lost our job, when our house burned down. It's the Lord. Does that give you trouble? That whenever we struggle in life, a lot of times when bad things happen to us, we always love to say, oh, Satan's busy at work. Oh, oh was Satan active in my life this week? Uh, can I just tell you that's a misattribution? When there is difficulty in your life, yes, God may be using Satan, just as he did with Job, but could Satan do whatever he wanted with Job? No, he had to go get permission from God. And so some of the evil things in our life, yes, Satan and his demonic horde may be actively involved in it, but who is causing this difficulty and this tr struggle, this trial in my life? It is the Lord just as much as it was for, for, for Moses and the nation of Israel. That gives us some theological problems, doesn't it? And so we're gonna have to work through this. Is there anything outside of this that gives evidence the fact that God is the author of my trials? Friends, how long do you have? I'll give you this verse again because I want you to remember it. Isaiah 45, seven. I mean, seriously, memorize this verse. I form light, I create darkness. These two polar spectrums Light and darkness, God says, I create them both. He says, I make well-being, and I create calamity. Okay? Who does it? I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, if you have a King James Bible and you're looking at Isaiah 45, 7, it'll say, I make well-being and I create evil. Does God actually create moral evil? He does not. Okay, so the better translation, this is the Hebrew word ra'ach, which means, it could mean moral evil, or it could mean something that is just a troublesome thing, a trial, a difficulty. How do we know which one it is? Well, context. You look at what it's being contrasted. God is contrasting light and dark. He's contrasting well-being and not wickedness. He contrasts well-being to a lack of well-being, which is calamity. It's difficult things. It's a trial. It's a struggle in our life. It's a difficulty. Who creates the difficulty in our lives? You don't want to say it either. Neither do I. It's the Lord. The Lord creates these things. He says it right here in Isaiah 45, 7. He says, is that the only verse you have? I said, no. Uh, Amos, not the cookie guy, but uh, Amos the prophet from the Old Testament. You know that prophet that you never read? Uh, in that section of your Bible that has no underlines and no highlights? Amos. Uh, the burden bearer. Uh, the prophet, the Judean, Judean prophet, who had the, the unenviable position of having to prophesy to the northern kingdom. So you're this Judean prophet, you're prophesying to the northern kingdom, because the northern kingdom was even more wicked than the southern kingdom. I don't know if you've ever studied the kings, there were a few good Judean kings. There were zero good northern kings. They were full of idolatry. And so God took them before he took the southern kingdom. Remember that? He brought in the Assyrians to capture them. And the Assyrians were a wicked, wicked people. They were one of the most barbaric of the empires that ever ruled the earth. In fact, when they would take, the, they would take a land, they would burn it, they would raise it, they would steal everything, there would be raping and killing. And uh, a lot of times, some of the men that they wanted to keep for, as servants and some of the women, you know, they would put rings in their noses and loop ropes through it and they would lead them back to their land. 
And a lot of the men that left behind, the fighting men, they would leave as, an, as a warning to others, don't mess the Assyrians, and they would impale them on spikes to die, or they would flay them alive and just leave them wide open. That's the Assyrians. It's a horrific people. The Assyrians, in destroying the northern kingdom and leading them captive, was that just some accident? Is God saying, oh, I'm so sad that's happening? Or did God cause the Assyrians to do that? God caused the Assyrians. Amos told us so. Book of Amos, chapter three, verse six says, does, does, speaking about this specific situation with the Assyrians, he says, does disaster come to a city unless, who? The Lord has done it. Amos is letting them know this destruction that's coming upon you from the Assyrians, the Lord is doing it. The Southern kingdom they got the same treatment. It just took them a little bit longer. Jeremiah 27, 6 talks about Nebuchadnezzar. The, now the Babylonians are taking the southern kingdom and they're going to do the same thing. They're gonna kill. They're going to destroy. They're gonna take all of the gold instruments out of the temple, God's own house. And they're going to steal all these things and they're gonna take it back into their own land so that later on Belshazzar can take these instruments of God and eat and drink and praise false gods using temple gold. And he's going to kill men and women. He's going to siege them. And he's going to take the best of their land. He's going to try to make them into Babylonians. And he's going to put Babylonians back into the land of Israel so that it'll never be populated by Israelis again. It'll just be this Babylonian-ish culture. Is that a divine accident? Do we just say, well, this isn't God's will. Bad things happen. Uh, God didn't want this to happen in your life, but somehow it happened. Is that why they took over Babylon? Jeremiah 27, 6 reminds us that the reason they got taken over, God says it was because of Nebuchadnezzar, and then God called him these words, my servant. The man who orchestrated this whole attack, destroying them, destroying the temple, stealing all the gold, taking it back into the land, and God said, that was my servant doing my will and my bidding when he did all that. So all of this evil, all of this difficulty that you're experiencing right now, it's because of me, because I have a plan beyond just your plan, because what is our plans? What is our will for our life? Comfort, success, good food, soft place to sleep, good friends. That's our will for our life. Is that always God's will for our life? God's will for our life is not comfort, but holiness. God's will for our life is that we find that our life is in him, and he will use whatever means necessary to make us like himself, even if it means taking away our comfort. And that's what God did. God did all of this. Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, in the day of prosperity rejoice. God gives us good days. Enjoy those days. Don't live for prosperity, but enjoy it when he gives it to you. But he also says, in the day of adversity, when things are adverse, ad against, when all of life is against you, when you're struggling financially, you're struggling emotionally with people, you're struggling with relationships, with depression and loneliness and sorrow, what does Solomon say in his old age? God has made the one day as well as the other. The good days come from God. Oh, God is good. I got a job. God is good. What about when life is hard? Do we still say God is good? We can because God hasn't changed. My circumstances change, but God is still good. It gives a whole new understanding to Psalm 118.24 which says, this is the day that the Lord has made. 
I will rejoice and be glad in it. A lot of times you see that verse, where do you see it? It's on somebody's kitchen wall. Some mother's trying to inspire themselves as they're doing dishes. You know what I mean? It's up on the wall. It's got some son with a smiley face. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and glad in it. It's just some pep verse. Let's be happy. This is the day that God has made. So it's just fun and, and clowns and, and balloons. Once again, Bible interpretation, what do you always do with a verse? Read it in context. Do you know what the verse that comes right after that? You don't ever see that one on the wall. Psalm 118.25 reads, Save us, O Lord, we pray. You don't ask God to save you if you're at Disneyland. You're not, you're not riding in a space mountain saying, Save us, O Lord, we pray. Well, maybe some of y'all don't like roller coasters. But you're not at Disney saying, Save us, O Lord, we pray. When do you say, Save us, O Lord? When you're hurting when you feel like you're going to die and you're being crushed by life and you say, save us, O Lord, we pray. And yet the verse right before that says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Which day? The day where I need saved. The day where I'm being crushed and hurt and bruised and wounded by life. This is the day that the Lord has made. And even though I need his salvation, I am still making a conscious choice. I will rejoice and be glad in it. God made this day. The day that I need saved, God still made that day. And so, yes, the Lord is responsible for even the trials that we have in life. Our temptation is to always think, however, that God's will for my life is always my will for my life. Oh, we won't say that because that just sounds ridiculous to say. But deep down in your heart, don't you feel it sometimes? That God's will for my life is always that I get a better, higher paying job. Oh, yeah, it's going to take me out of church every Sunday, but surely it's God's will that I make more money. We always believe God's will for our life is going to be that I will be more comfortable, not less comfortable. That God's will will be that I always go from mama's basement to an apartment to a big house to a mansion, my dream house. That's always God's will for my life, right? That's our temptation because we think very, unfortunately, even as Christians, we can think very self-centeredly if we're not careful. And we think that God's will is always this golden brick road of things are going to get better every day in every way until I get to heaven. And we think that God is always going to agree with what we're doing. Friends, if you have a God who always agrees with you, and a God who always does what you want them to do, we have a name for that. It's called an idol. Why do you think men worship idols? It's because it's a God they can control. It's a God that never disagrees with your immorality. It's a God that always wants to bless you and give you good things and curse all your enemies. If, that, if you refuse to believe in a God that disagrees with you, if you refuse to believe and put your faith in a God who does things you don't like, friends, you're not trusting in God. You're living in idolatry even if you go to church. Because we have to allow God to be God. It means that we have to allow God to say things that disagree with our hearts. We have to allow God to do things in our lives that we disagree with or we don't like. It's not comfortable. It's not much of a parent if he just does everything we want. Do you parent your kids that way? Do you ever make your kids do things they don't want to do? Kids, do your parents ever make you do anything you don't want to do? You know, any little ones here? Yeah, they're mom and dads. They make you do things. And they do it because they tell you they love you, Right? You know, did your mom and dads ever make you eat uh, broccoli? I've been there. I've been there with you. I, I feel your pain. My dad made me eat Brussels sprouts. I'd never seen these things before, these little, like, micro heads of lettuce that have been shrunk. And just, like, my dad made me eat these things, and they just taste miserable and awful. Why would my dad force me to eat those? How cruel. Are Brussels sprouts good for your body, though? 
They are. Now, what would your kid eat if you just let them, hey, kid, you get to pick out what you want for dinner tonight, and every night the rest of your life, what are you going to have? You're going to have chicken nuggets with french fries with a healthy dose of ice cream at the end of every meal, and that's what he's going to have every day if you let your kid pick his meal. Parents, you don't, you're not so foolish as to let your children pick what they want because they're always going to choose what is pleasurable. They're going to live by pleasure and not principle. That's when you know you're maturing, by the way, is you're not living just for what makes me happy and what makes me pleasurable. You live by principle. I'm going to work out even though I hate getting on the elliptical because it's good for me. I'm going to eat Brussels sprouts willingly, voluntarily. I'm going to eat peat moss, you know, for dinner because I know that it, by faith that it's good for me. I don't just eat what's, what I like and what's pleasurable. That's maturity, and so parents sometimes do things to kids they don't like. They make them go to bed at a certain time because if you didn't, you let your kid pick his bedtime, he's gonna fall asleep on a video game controller. That's our kids. They're not gonna do what's wise. They're gonna live by what's pleasurable. They're not gonna live by principle. They need, they need a dad and a mom to do that and make those decisions for them until they're mature enough to make that decision themselves. God is the same way with us, only infinitely greater. And so sometimes God, like, as a good parent, he's gonna do things we don't like we don't agree with, and we might even feel like they're wrong for doing it. How could you take away this joy in my life? It's because they care about our outcome, not just that we're happy. Number two, trials expose the reality of our faith. Let's look at uh, A, the problem. Here's the problem Israel's facing. Chapter 14, verse five says, when the king of Egypt was told that the people fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we have done? that we have let Israel go out from serving us. I would read that and I always think, didn't one of the advisors look at the bloody river and look at the dead animals and look at the heaps of frogs and look at the freshly dug graves of the newborns and say, Pharaoh, I think that was why we let them go. We're not gonna fight God. But they didn't say a word. But Pharaoh hardened his heart. He didn't care about the truth you see, foolish people are not motivated by truth. They're only motivated by pain. Rebuke a wise man, he will be yet wiser. He hears the word of God, he changes his life, and he lives under the blessing of God. The rod is for the fool's back. The fool only listens to pain. And so Pharaoh foolishly goes to fight God again. He's blinded by self. Verse seven, so he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots. So this is the best of the best and other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. I've got a picture here of a, an Egyptian chariot. You did not want to be facing these chariots, or eventually we'll have a picture of a chariot up here. Um, anyhow, you know what a chariot looks like. These were scary things. Chariots back then in, in that kind of warfare, a lot of times they would attach blades to the wheels. Um, it was the pinnacle of military might. And you could drive, just a handful of chariots could decimate ground forces just simply driving through them. And while you're on there, it provided a stable platform for archers just to fire their arrows relentlessly, this huge stockpile of arrows, not just what you can fit on your back, but what you can fit in this pickup truck. And they're driving through, and so Pharaoh has 600 choice chariots. These are his best chariots, his strongest, his most innovative chariots, his best charioteers, his best archers. And beyond that, what else did he bring? all the rest of his chariots. Some historians have estimated that number to be as close as 20,000. Remember, this is the mightiest empire. Does it take that many chariots to defeat a bunch of families 
with grandma and grandpa and the kids camping out at the KOA campground? Does it take, it's like rolling tanks on a campground of families. This is not necessary. Why is Pharaoh doing this? Because Pharaoh understands he's fighting God and he is bringing everything he has together in this one final battle. And even though logically it makes no sense to fight God, he's gonna do it anyway because he has a hard heart, just like the Antichrist is gonna do, by the way, in Armageddon, the end of tribulation. Makes no sense that Satan's gonna oppose God. Why will he? Because his heart is hard. And that's where we find Pharaoh today. He's attacking these people. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out, it says, defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and the horsemen of his armies, and he overtook them and encamped by the sea at Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. So the, Israel, the text says Israel went out defiantly, literally with a high hand. They're like, woohoo, yeah, we got this. Look what the Lord has done. We're finally free of Egypt's and their, Egypt and their bonds of slavery. And so they went out boldly. They're carrying out all the spoils of war, this, if you will, tribute to the God of Israel. And they're carrying it out with them. And they are just, there's hands high, high-fiving each other. They're excited. They're walking out. And right as everything seems to be going well in their life, they had no idea that right around the corner was Pharaoh and literally the entire army of the mightiest army in the world that was about to come upon them. And that's how it can be in life sometimes. You feel like you just had a mountaintop experience and you don't even realize that all that time there's this, this mighty army coming against you. And that's how trials can feel. Well, how do you think this nation's gonna respond when they finally catch up and realize after this mighty work that God did? Mind you, God just did these 10 miraculous plagues and freed them from the land of Egypt. Are they gonna be like, oh, you should not have come against our God. Watch what our God can do. Do you think they're gonna respond in faith? They're not. They're gonna do like you and I would right there. We're gonna see B, Israel's response. Verse 10 says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. So these people who are just marching out, singing triumph, triumphant to God, you know, they've got their hands raised in the air. Woo, look at what God did. They look at the nation, and immediately all the faith that they had just disappeared, and it says, and they feared greatly. And that's how we do when trials come. That's our natural humanistic response to trial is we begin to just fear greatly. And it says, and then they began to cry out to the Lord. And so they began to call out to God for this immediate response, this immediate, God, save us again. They're scared and they're calling out in fear. And often that's what trials do. They squeeze prayer out of us. And so they're calling out to God. They don't see an immediate response. What happens when you're hurting as a person and you're calling out to God, and you don't see an immediate response to your life. God doesn't just immediately resolve all of your problems. We tend to begin to take that pain, and we, if, we, if we're not wise, if we're not mature, we will dump that pain on other people. I can't carry this pain anymore. You take it from me. Is that what Israel's gonna do? It's exactly what Israel's gonna do. They cry out to God. I don't see God answering with thunder and lightning. And so the first thing they do is they start complaining to their spiritual leader, in this case, Moses. And they start to blame him. You are the cause for all of our problems. Listen to what they say in verse 11. They say to Moses, is it because, and listen to the snark in their voice, is it because there are no graves in Egypt 
that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? They're catastrophizing. They're like Barney Fife, who's like, this is happening, then this is happening, this is gonna happen, this is happening, the whole world's gonna blow up. We're just all dead. They're, they're Barney Fifing here. And then they, and so they go from catastrophizing and accusing to blaming. They say to Moses, what have you done? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? And they go to blame and they accuse their spiritual leaders of things. And then they go straight up to lying. Listen to this bizarre lie. By the way, when you're walking in the flesh and people are just angry and they're in full of pain, eventually they just start saying crazy, ridiculous lies. They said, is, this, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? End quote, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. You tell me, friends. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. Do you really think that's what Israel was saying while they were serving the Egyptians? Moses, leave us alone. We're pretty happy here being slaves and being whipped and beaten and just serving the, the whims of Pharaoh. No, what were they doing? They were crying out to the Lord. God even said when he called Moses, the cry of the people of Israel has risen to my ears. I've heard it. So they're just straight up lying now because they don't care how they get their way. They just want to unload all of their, all of their sadness and their anger and their depression and their fear and they want to dump it. And because God's not answering right away, I want to find a human to blame it on. They, and then they, uh, they say, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And now they're just complaining. And that's what we can do. If we're not walking with God, We'll cry out to the Lord, and instead of leaving our burdens there and saying, God, I'm trusting you, if we're not careful, we start to dump our pain onto everybody around us. It might be a pastor, it might be your Sunday school teacher, it might be your D group leader, it might be your husband or your wife or your parents, or you're gonna look for somebody to blame for your woes if we're not careful. That's not where we take our burdens as a Christian. The Bible says we cast our cares on him because he cares for you. But they didn't do that. Now, at this point in time, had God not orchestrated this attack on Egypt or, or on Israel from Egypt, the Israelis would have thought their faith to be very strong, would they not? What were they just doing? Celebrating defiantly, hands in the air. Yeah, we did it. We, we are the people of God to life. They would have thought that their faith was very strong. And so God brought this trial into their life to reveal to them, your faith ain't that great. It's really not that strong. It's why you can't evaluate your faith on a sunny day. Everybody's faith looks like great faith when life is going your way. When you have plenty of money, when the temperature of the room is right where you want it. Some of you, I see blankets out there. Uh, when, the, when things are going your way and the car is running and your kids are reasonably obedient, you and your wife or husband, you're doing well, bills are paid, and you have a vacation on the horizon. I mean, you're happy. You're good. Your faith looks real strong. And apart from trial, we'll never know if it really is truly strong. So without, without, without a trial to come into our life, we would never realize what's really on the inside. A lot of times, we want to excuse how we behave in trial as that's not really me. Oh, I did that. I treated you poorly. I yelled at you. I complained. I did this. I did that. I sinned. But that's just because I was going through a trial. Friends, who you are in trial is who you are. 
Who you are is not simply who you are when life is good. Jesus says, if you love those that love you, what benefit do you have in that? Even the the pagans, the tax collectors, the sinners, that's how they love. If you're only happy with God and worshiping God when it's sunny outside, you only come to church when it's sunny, no direct application to today, but if you only come to church when it's sunny, friend, is that real faith? If you only come, if you only worship God when he's, when he's doing what you want, when you only read the Bible, when God is performing according to your expectations, is that truly faith? Faith that only works when things go well is like an umbrella that only works when it's sunny. You know what I mean? Faith that only works when things go well is like an umbrella that only works when it's sunny. You pull it out, but it doesn't work. Faith is meant to work in those hard times because everybody appears to have faith. Everybody has claims to faith when things are going well. So I Proverbs 24.10. First time I read this as a kid, I read this verse and I just kind of thought, well, that's a silly verse. Yeah, of course. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. What God is really saying here is, you think you're strong. Everybody feels strong when nothing is testing your strength. But if you faint in the day of adversity, that day where that faith is supposed to be displayed and you show that you don't have strength, that you don't have faith, it reveals that your strength is actually small. It's not just because you're going through a bad day and what I really am is what I really am when there's rainbows, unicorns, and sunshine and cotton candy happening. Who you are under trial is who you are. It's revealing what's truly inside of you. It's why God does trial. It's to reveal to us, you're not as strong as you think you are. You got some room to grow. Because God's goal for us in life is to be steadfast. That trials don't change who I am. It doesn't change how I treat you. It doesn't change how I behave. It doesn't change how I follow God. It doesn't change how I give to others. It doesn't change anything about me. That's when you know you're truly mature. That your faith is strong. That under adversity, you don't change. Because all of us have claims to great faith, but great claims to great faith must be tested. You know, one of my favorite magazines is Consumer Reports. Do people even read physical magazines anymore? Anybody still get subscriptions of those? I used to love these, even as a a very young man. I got subscriptions to Consumer Reports, and as soon as you get one in the mail, it always feels a little bit like a ripoff because you'd get, you know, these big, thick magazines, and then you'd get Consumer Reports, and it's like, this thin. And what you realize is because it's not full of ads. And it doesn't have ads because Consumer Reports doesn't take ads from people because they want to be completely impartial and unbiased as they test out consumer products. And so every product out there claims to be the greatest, doesn't it? Uh, Say, for instance, a vacuum. I remember as a kid, I'd see commercials of vacuums and they'd like pick up a bowling ball with a vacuum as if that's a a really practical application of a bowling, uh, of a vacuum, you know. We all wanna go home and pick bowling balls up with it. But it, it was trying to show you, we have the most powerful vacuum on the market because every vacuum on the market has these great claims that we're this super powerful vacuum. We could suck the hair off a cat. Buy my vacuum, it's fantastic. And you get it home and you plug in this vacuum and despite what all the print on the box said, you turn it on and it's like an asthmatic kid sucking on a straw. And you're thinking, I feel ripped off. And so Consumer Reports, what they do is they will test these products and they will put them through the paces. They'll run these vacuums for hours. They're gonna put it way past what you or I would do because they wanna see the limitations of this vacuum to see if your claims live up to your performance. 
And so they will run it for hours. They'll, I mean, they'll drop it down the stairs. They'll, they'll like vacuum up a box of thumbtacks, you know, just to see what this vacuum can do. And that, friends, is what a trial is. We all have great claims to faith. We all appear very pious and faithful. We come to church, we wear suits and ties and dresses, some of us. You know, we, we all want to bring the best dessert to the potluck so we can all discuss, you know, who makes the best pumpkin roll. You know, that's, that's us, these great claims to faith. And what God is going to do through trial is he's going to say, you have great claims to faith. Let me take your life and suck up a box of thumbtacks. Now let's see how your faith does. Let me put your faith to a test. Let me test out the limitations of your faith and see if it really is real. Because if your faith is only strong on sunny days, it's not true and genuine faith. True and genuine faith works even on, on rainy days, even when it's difficult, even when God runs your life across thumbtacks and you still worship God, that's when you have strong faith. And God will put us to the test. 1 Peter 1, 7 to 9 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. In other words, trials aren't forever. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The word grieved there means to make sad, to put you through agony, to cause even depression at times. Is it ever God's intention to put us in situations that will make us sad? You won't find that in a daily bread devotional, will you? Does God ever want us to be sad, to be mourning, to be at times even depressed? Does God lead us into situations where he wants us to feel that way for a time? Yes. I can show you examples all over the Bible. I'll just give you James 4 and 9. It says, weep, mourn, and wail. Those are commands. Let your happiness be turned to sorrow. That was God's will and intention for the readers of the book of James. Because there is something that God produces in our heart during periods of sadness, periods of sorrow, periods even of depression. You know, the great Elijah even went through a great depression. He was suicidally depressed, 1 Kings 19. And that's right where God wanted him so that God could bring him into himself, take care of his physical needs, spend some time with him. He re-equips Elijah and sends him back out. You see, there's, things, there's lessons in life we won't learn when everything is going well for us. But how do even Christians, we want to respond to trial and difficulty and sorrow? What do we want to do? I want to escape it. That's a functional Buddhist. You just need to know that. The, real, the, whole, the core tenet of Buddhism is suffering and avoiding it. And as Christians, sometimes we can believe it's never God's will for me to be sad. It's never God's will for me to be uh, anxious. Never God's will for me to be stressed. Never God's will for me to be even depressed at times. Now, it's not God's will that we remain there, okay? We are to be anxious for nothing, but what we do is, we, there are times God will put us into these situations where our flesh will become sad, angry, depressed, and all these things. And a lot of times we just want to escape. And so we go out and we, we buy something, makes us feel good. Or we go on a vacation to escape it. Or we escape it through TV or games and we just, we just escape the problem. Or worse yet, we just take a pill. Huh, I can't feel bad, quick. You know, and we just take something to dull my pain. Is that really God's intention that every time I feel sad, sorrowful, depressed, or anxious, upset, or angry, that we immediately ameliorate it by escaping it, you know, through retail therapy or some drug? Friends, it's not always God's intention. 
Because God wants us to experience that pain and sorrow so that we'll look to him alone and we will work through and process through that pain, not just avoid the pain. Pain is not something to be avoided. It's something that when it comes into our life, we turn to God and say, God, what am I to learn from this? God, I'm gonna trust you through this. And when we finally come to a place where we fully trust God in this situation, the anger disappears, the anxiety disappears, the depression disappears because we have put our faith in God that he's in control of the situation. That's where God wants us to be as a result of a trial, not simply to avoid the trial altogether. Number three, trials reveal God's power. Only when Israel is faced with agonizing need do they see the power of God. Look at Exodus 14, 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it so that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord and that I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God, what is the purpose of all of this trial here? It's so that under this trial, we'll feel that tension and that stress and that pressure. And it's not something we're just supposed to try to get out of. We are to remain up under Hupomone, to remain up under this stress and this pressure and this tension and to allow God to just work through our life despite that pressure. And we hold fast, we remain strong. That's what he wants us to do. And when that happens, God will answer in such a way that he gets glory. Isn't that what he said he's gonna do here? He's gonna do this to glorify himself that the Egyptians may know that he is God. That's God's purpose in trial, is to glorify himself. God's glory, when man's opinion of God is radically altered for the good, when we see the power of God. Well, in verse 19, God protects Israel during the trial. It says, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. <clears throat> and there was a cloud and there was the, and darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Notice, by the way, that this trial didn't just immediately disappear. I'm in struggle and trial here, God, deliver me. Boom, delivered? Not in my Bible. It says God let them stay in that difficult spot all night long. Can God still be good and loving even though he allows you to remain in a trial? Even though he allows you to remain sick? even though he allows you to remain under financial suffering, can God still be good? He's still good. And can we have a, a reasonable hope and expectation that God is gonna make this good in the end? We can, just like he did for Israel. He protects them. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went in the midst of the sea on dry ground and the waters being a wall to them on the right and to the left. Now, never watch a documentary on this. I can't watch Bible documentaries because 90% of the time they see a documentary on the Bible, what they're trying to do is demystify the Bible to try to show you why God really isn't that good, why he's really not that great. They're gonna try to find why the men in the fiery furnace found a cool part of the furnace, if you can believe it. I saw it on a documentary, so it must be true. And then here, they'll try it on documentaries, they'll try to show you why this is just some naturalistic occurrence 
you know, where the, this, this wind came through and just, and it blew everything aside. Friends, that doesn't happen naturally in nature. It says it created walls of water. And this is the sea. Parts of the sea are really, really, really deep, like 1,400 meters deep, parts of it. You don't just create walls like that naturally with the wind. You might get waves, but you won't get walls. And this word walls, the same word used in Joshua 2 of the walls of Jericho, these 26 foot high walls of, of water. Moreover, how do we know that this is a miraculous experience? When they walked, when the water was parted and they walked across it, what did they walk on? Dry land. Does that happen naturally? I grew up on a farm. We used to swim in a pond. I know, probably full of amoebas and all kinds of other bacteria, and it's why I am the way I am. But I'd go swimming in this pond, and we'd, my feet would sink down to the bottom, and it wasn't like a sandy beach. You'd slink in. There's like this much sludge at the bottom of this, this cesspool that I would swim in as a kid. And you walk across the ocean. You immediately recede the waters. It may not be that sludgy, but it's, it's going to be wet and sloppy and soaked, and you're not going to get across there very easily, and yet it's immediately dry. There's no natural phenomena that occurs that way. God doesn't need, by the way, a crutch. If you believe in an infinite, all-powerful God who created the heavens, the sea, the earth, the dry land, he doesn't need your help. Verse 23, it says, The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and in the morning watch. So they've been doing this all night long. The Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them and against the Egyptians. I always find it interesting. The very land that God made dry to allow Israel to walk across is the same land that God used to cause them to sink into the muck and trap their enemies. Now, what I want you to notice here is that God allowed Israel to feel a period of stress in their life. Let me ask you, could God have defeated Israel or Egypt way back? He could have, couldn't he? He could have defeated them before they got out of the gates, but he didn't. God allowed them to pursue and to trap them, causing, knowing full well this is going to cause Israel to go into a panic. Furthermore, when God opened and parted the ocean, could he not have just left Pharaoh and his army back there with the pillar of fire until he got across, closed the water, and said, sorry, boys, it's a long walk home. God could have done that, but he didn't. What did God do? He left the waters open. He allowed the enemy in. You hearing me? God left the walls of water open and intentionally allowed the enemy in, allowed them to pursue Israel, allowed them to chase mommies and daddies and babies and grandmas and grandpas. God allowed that. Allowed them to chase them there. God wanted Israel in the midst of that wall of water crossing the Red Sea. He wanted them to feel the fear and the tension, the anxiety that would come from these mighty chariots chasing you into this channel of water that God had opened up. So you might be in the middle of what God wants you to do, right in the middle of God's will, where the pillar of fire and cloud are right there. They're leading you, and you're in the midst of what God wants you to do, and yet in the midst of that, God still leads a really difficult force into your life, causing you to stress out. Is that still God's will? It was for Israel. God doesn't promise us a stress-free life. In fact, what the Bible does promise is all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
Sometimes God wants his children in periods of stress and trial so that God, we can look to the Lord for our answer. A lot of times it's the only time that we'll call out in prayer to God, isn't it? Is in a trial and God squeezes us like a dog chew toy. <laughs> Help me, Lord. <laughs> Help me out of the situation. Because, I mean, how many of you on a Disney cruise are driven and motivated to hours of intercessory prayer on a Disney cruise? Now, what if that cruise line started to sink? Oh, then you're going to pray. <laughs> you're going to pray like a Tibetan monk on an energy drink. You're going to speak in tongues, praying to the Lord, Lord, deliver us. Because a lot of times that's the only thing that's going to get believers to pray is when we're struggling and God squeezes our life and we go, help me, Lord. And then we wonder why God brings trials into our life. You see, trials, its end goal and its purpose, number four, is to lead us to worship. Israel, uh, they get to the other side of this crossing Exodus 14, 27, 29 says, as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned. They covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. None of them remained, and, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and to the left. God answered their prayer. Friends, God will answer our prayers too. Not always the way you want. Not always the timing that we want but our God's still in control. And it's ultimately to lead us to a place of worship. So they're on the other side now. The forces of Pharaoh and his armies are dead. They're never gonna follow them ever again. And here they are on the other side of the, of the water and they're looking back and they're seeing nobody following them anymore. What is the natural response to a child of God right after God saves them and rescues them? It's worship. Exodus 14 was one of the worst trials in Israel's life. It was one of the most terrifying experiences that they've ever experienced, ever. And yet, when God saves them, we get Exodus 15. Now, those of you who got a study Bible, go down, go ahead and look at Exodus 15 and see if you have a, what the heading for that chapter 15 is. What is it? It's a song of Moses. Now, it's not a song about Moses and how Moses is great. It's a song of Moses leading his people to sing of the greatness and the worship of God. We're only going to look at the first two verses here. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song. Then, it's attaching it to what just happened. As a result of what God did in his glorious deliverance, then the Moses and the people of Israel sang this song. And then I want you to count for me how many times they reference God, his, or God in some way. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Twelve times God gets referenced, including, he, they even call him my strength, my song. Those are things that they're attributing to the Lord himself. Twelve times in these two verses, they talk about God, 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 God. By the way, that is the heart of true worship. God is the center of the worship. It's not man. It's not just how I feel. A lot of modern worship is just how I feel about God. God, I feel this way. God, I'm going to do these things for you. God is, and it, that's how our worship is. It's very man-centered still. True worship is God, 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 God. This is what God did. Look what God did for me. That's what the song of Moses was. And so their trial, it began with a crisis followed by a very human response, a cry to God. Then they calm themselves, reviewing the word of God and the promises of God. 
They make a commitment to ignore their feelings and they press on and they obey God by going into the water and that leads into a consecrated heart of worship. That's the process of trials that God wants us to go through. Crisis, cry, calm, commitment, consecration. All C is just as the pastor is gonna give it to you. you know? The song of Moses, I just want you to hear this as we're, beginning, as we're wrapping this up. The song of Moses would not exist apart from this horrific trial. Apart from trial in our own life, we won't worship God, typically. When things are going, and going well in life, our natural response of man is to forget God. That's why God brings trial into our life, so that we can see a great salvation. Because if you look at every worship song, every worship song, it's a result of worshiping God for him, his greatness, and what he has done. That, wor that worship is catalyzed by trial. That trial is the tr catalyst of all true worship. All true worship is about God's salvation and his greatness and his deliverance. And so that's where we get the song of Moses. It came from one of the worst times of their life. Some of you guys' greatest testimonies, do they come from the worst time of your life? For me, it did. I've told you, I've told you before, uh, COVID, it's not so far in the rearview mirror yet that we don't remember what we went through. But for me personally, I've told you that it was one of the worst times of my life. We had only been in Malaysia at that time for about six, seven months. We weren't really even fully acclimated to the country yet. Uh, my wife's grandmother died. So Amber goes back to the United States. During that time, COVID breaks out. And Asians, they tend to get really nervous about respiratory disease. And so they shut their borders down. That trapped my wife away from me. During that time, my gallbladder went on an absolute fritz and just rebelled against me. And I don't just mean a gallbladder attack. It was an infected, gangrenous gallbladder. Y'all watch cowboy movies. Cowboy gets gut shot, he gets gangrene. What happens to the cowboy? You have a funeral scene next. Okay, so I had a gangrenous gallbladder. It means my gallbladder, he said, literally had necrotic tissue on it. I was literally had dead, dying organs in my body. And it threw me into a, an infection that nearly killed me. I was in the hospital for three and a half weeks clinging to life. I thought I was gonna die. I fully was preparing to meet God. Uh, it was a really tough time. Even morphine wasn't cutting the pain. And it was just a very difficult, sorrowful time in my life where I was hallucinating at one point. I was hearing voices in my head. I mean, it was just like these weird, awful, demonic-type voices. I'm not trying to be sensational. It's what I was, it's just what I was experiencing. And it was just, it was this horrific time of sorrow and I'm searching out to God and just begging him and these voices just kept telling me, you're gonna die, you're never gonna see your family again, you're alone in this hospital. Quarantine had caused my daughter Capri to be alone in our apartment. She couldn't even visit me at the hospital, they wouldn't let her out of the house. And so I'm alone here, Capri's alone there, Amber's alone there, we're struggling, we're suffering and you're just asking God, what, what is the point of all this? Well, my wife goes and she goes on a, crusade and gets thousands of people to pray for me. And God slowly drugged me out of this pit. And while he's slowly dragging me out, it was just, it's just a real sorrowful time between me and the Lord. Even the artwork on the wall was against me. There, there was a piece of artwork on the wall and there's like this big grove of trees way off in the distance. And then there's just like this yellow sand all the way out, like this desert. And then there's this one lone tree in the middle of this desert. And I just remember looking at the, the picture and thinking, that's me. Everybody I love, everybody who's like me is so far away from me and I'm just in the middle of this desert. I'm gonna die by myself in some Kuala Lumpur hospital. 
But do you know what God gave me through that time after he brought me out? Do you know what, what passage I studied in great depth during that time? Hebrews chapter 11. This sermon series very much is born out of what God taught me in the time of life when I thought I was going to die. This is not the song of Moses. This was the song of Heath. It was the pain and the difficulty that became the lyrics of my life song that praised God. And so I just want to ask you, believer, this morning as we're closing, you're going through trial? You've been through trial and you're still trying to overcome it? Something that happened to you as a kid? Something that's happening to you in your marriage and just wondering why God is allowing it to happen. Maybe somebody you've lost in your life and you just can't piece it together why God, being good, would ever allow you to go through this. Just understand, God is crafting the song of your life. And these painful things that we would never wish anybody to go through are the very lyrics that God is going to use to, to squeeze out of you a song of praise on the other side. And so I'm just gonna ask you to hold on. Hold on and look to that pillar of cloud and fire that goes before us. God is still there with you, and he's going to deliver you to the other side. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. As we have your word, we can open it up that, God, our human logic, that if we never open up this Bible, we're going to be led to some real foolishness. We're going to think that you're bad that the devil is good, that the world is the best that we have to hope for. And we're going to think that your greatest and highest good for me is just to skate through life and have fun. And your word reminds us that your intention in our life is, is not for us to be comfortable, not to live by pleasure, but to live by principle. And you will allow us as a good God to go through difficult times because you know that on the other side of that difficulty is going to be a, a song of worship. Lord, help us to be patient in the trial that we're in today. Help us to draw near to you and to cry out to you, to lean on other brothers and sisters for encouragement during this trial. And God, I beg of you that on the other side of this, you will be glorified in how we respond in faith, that you will craft in us a song of faith that will inspire others to put their faith in our great God. We offer this up. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.